Friday night, I did something that many of you do, I feel sure. I, I shared Chinese cookout, I mean cookout, takeout. So Chinese takeout, and at the end of the Chinese takeout, of course, you've got the fortune cookie in there, and I'm a sucker, I'll, I'll read the fortune cookie. I don't believe in fortune cookies at all, right? And you don't either, but then you look at it and go, hmm. So I looked at this one, this is a typical fortune cookie. It said, soon you will enjoy sports success. And I mean, if I can't believe that one, I don't know what to think. But if you got that fortune cookie, some of you would be thinking like, I'm going to beat my brother-in-law in golf, or uh, I'm finally going to beat my sister in the St. Jude 10K, or, um, and then if you're really old, you're thinking, I'm going to bet on the NBA finals because I'll just, you know. no, that's not the right application. That's not it. So I'm poo-pawing uh, fortune cookies. And then I'm thinking about this passage that we're going to look at in just a moment. And I think, what if you got a fortune cookie that said, soon you will not have a worry in the world. Now, the optimists among you would be going, oh my goodness, I'm going to win the lottery. Or, oh, that long lost relative is going to put me in the will. I didn't even know I had this money and it's going to come through for me. This is going to be awesome. And the pessimists among us are going to think, no, you idiot, it means you're going to die. You know, that soon you will not have a worry in this world. But what about the next world? You know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the minds of men to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and and end them by opposing them. No, no, no. And then, yeah, what if it's not in this world? It's in the next world. And gosh, who knows what dreams that sleep may hold in the next world. I'm not secure. I'm not ready to die. I'm not. So soon you will not have a worry in the world. You know, that's my hope this morning is that by the time we have finished meditating on Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, that you and I will not have a worry in the world, that we will have so grasped the meaning of this passage of Scripture that we would recognize I shouldn't have a worry in the world, I should be trusting here. So that's, that's my great hope, that's my great hope for all of us. Let's turn then to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and see what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would say to us this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Kind and merciful Father in heaven, please stir our spiritual dullness so that we have eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to believe this truth that you communicate to us through your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, this, how hard can this be? These verses that we've just read in the Greek are really, it's only one sentence. Only one sentence. So how hard can that be for us to understand just one sentence? Uh, and then you're thinking, well, one sentence, that's a little light, isn't it? I mean, you know, just to give us one sentence, uh, you ought to preach on a little bit more than just one sentence. Well, one sentence can be pretty dense. I mean, hello, it's July the 4th. Do you know this sentence? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And whenever any form of government is destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. That was just one sentence too. But there's a lot at stake in that one sentence, which we'll come back to a little bit later. You know, this one sentence uh, in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is incredible. It's amazing. And perhaps the best scriptural commentary on it could be Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And then the psalmist goes on to list more and more detailed um, elements of thanksgiving from us, like our litany of thanksgiving, because we have so much to be grateful for. We have so much for which to praise God. For bless is a word in scripture that's used in different ways in different contexts. If the one blessing is blessing an inferior, now I'm not forgetting the Declaration of Independence, there are no inferiors and superiors ontologically or in our worth and value before God, but in our place in life, our station in life, um, some are bosses and some are employees, some are uh, guests, and it's then my pleasure to serve whatever the guest is. I'm the inferior in that relationship. Well, when the superior is blessing the inferior, that's a proclamation. That's what we'll do at the end of this series, um, service as we do every week in worship when we hear Almighty God, before whom we are clearly inferiors, the Lord bless you and keep you. But when the inferiors bless the superior, it's not proclamation, it's praise. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse three is saying praise be to God. Just as in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul is what that means. Now many of you are familiar with Matt Redmond's version of Psalm 103. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. I thought about singing it and I thought, nah, I don't think I'll do that. But it says, you're rich in love and you're slow to anger. 
Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all this goodness, I will go on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. So this morning, I'm gonna preach on the 10,000 reasons that we should bless the Lord. And if I spend six seconds on each one of them, uh, we'll get through here sometime tomorrow, I think we'll be through. So just hang in there. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Let's just hope that it doesn't take that long. And I'm encouraged because I'm not preaching Psalm 103, I'm preaching Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And mercifully, the apostle Paul has given us four reasons that God should be praised, that we should bless the Lord, four reasons. And each one of them is made clear to us through this exhortation that's very clear that we have experienced this blessing, whichever one he's talking about, to the praise of his glory. Or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let's look at four reasons to bless the Lord. The first is in verse three, because of God the Trinity's blessings. We've got the whole Trinity, certainly in this one sentence, but even perhaps in this first part of the sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. It could be rendered that way. I'm not sure that it's an explicit reference to the Holy Spirit. I know that in verse 13, we have an explicit reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's possible even here that we have a triune God, meaning that our God is one. We don't jettison at all. Deuteronomy chapter six, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe in monotheism. There's only one true and living God. But what we have learned through the New Testament revelation that our Lord Jesus has given us and his apostles have given us is that this one God exists in three persons from everlasting to everlasting. There's never been a time where there weren't three persons in the Trinity that blows our minds. We can't understand it yet. Not, we shouldn't be embarrassed by that. We should recognize that this gives us insight into some of the most intractable of philosophical problems humanity has ever dealt with. The problem of the one and the many. And Francis Schaeffer was great for pointing out that, no, there's no reason to be ashamed of the doctrine of the Trinity. No, it gets closer than anything that finite minds can comprehend. How do you have one in the universe and yet many distinct expressions of life and of being within that one universe? So within the Trinity itself, we see one and three, unity and diversity, which is amazing blows our minds and ought to, even by itself, make us erupt in praise to such an incredible God, such a great God, a triune God. And what are we told that he has done here? He has blessed us, and then just look at these modifiers that are given in verse three. He has blessed us in Christ, so the Father has even taken into account the Son in all of this blessing, that the Son is the mediator of this blessing throughout. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every blessing of the Spirit. Now you may think, oh yeah, it's like the fortune cookie. I knew there was, a, I've got spiritual blessings, but hey, I live on the earth. I don't need spiritual blessings. I need money. I need possessions. I need a car that works. I need a house that's a little bigger for our growing family. I need a, I, I wouldn't worry about that. If in fact, 
this triune God truly loves you and cares about you, he'll provide for your daily bread. I don't think you need to worry about that. But in the Old Testament, the emphasis was almost completely on material blessings in Deuteronomy 28, that if you'll obey, you'll get all of these blessings. And so there was a lot of encouragement for that. But in the New Testament, we recognize that there is a whole different realm of reality that we don't see with our eyes and smell with our noses and hear with our ears. This realm is ultimate reality. And that is where God exists with his angels and archangels, seraphim and cherubim and in that realm, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what's meant by that expression, in the heavenly places, five times in the book of Ephesians, in the heavenly places, that spiritual realm, that realm of ultimate reality, even though it is not seen. Because God has so blessed us, we ought to bless him. It's undoubtedly true from Genesis 12, one through three, that God has blessed the spiritual children of Abraham that they might be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. But it's even more ultimately and everlastingly true from Ephesians chapter one, verse three, that we have been blessed in order to bless the one who has given us all things. Our mission to be a blessing will end when time is no more or when the Lord has come back and established eternity. But our mission to bless the one who has blessed us will never end. So um, why should we praise him? Because of the Trinity's blessings. We bless the one who has blessed us. Second reason that we ought to um, give praise to God is because of God the Father's election. There are two different verbs in verses um, four through six that point to this concept of election or predestination or choice and those verbs are he chose and he predestined. Verse four, even as he chose us in him, so again, it's in him, it's in Christ that he chose. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Whoa, that'll blow your mind. What? How, how could he have done that when I hadn't decided to follow Jesus before the foundation of the world? And there are those that would say, well, he just foreknew. God can see all things. He looked down the corridor of human history. He saw that you were gonna accept Christ and therefore he chose you. But that's not the picture that's in Ephesians chapter one or in John six or in Romans chapter nine. No, before we had ever done anything good or bad, God chose some of the sinful mass of humanity, conceptually speaking. He saw that Adam and Eve would fall and that all of their descendants would be plunged into sin and separation from him. And rather than just destroying the whole lot of us, he chose to save some. Could have saved all. For I don't know. I'm, I'm not God, clearly. But he didn't. He chose to save some. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose us in him. And he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. You know, in this verse, we're not talking about that you are looking for a dog and so you go to one of the really fancy dog boutiques and pet store that you find a breeder who has these purebreds and you look for the cutest puppy in the litter of this hottest of dog breeds and you say, we're gonna pick that one. No, in order to understand this choosing that God does, you're better off to think about going to the county animal shelter and you're looking at a mangy mongrel with ticks and fleas and a really weird temperament because of all of the strange stuff that that dog has endured already, and you choose that one. Whoa, 
God would do that for us? Do you think, I'm, no, I'm not a mongrel. I'm, I'm, God did pretty well to get me on his team. You're pretty confused. No, God doesn't need any of us. God sees through all the veneer, sees the heart, sees the sin. And even so, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The other verb, verses five and six, that um, he predestined us. And then again, the modifiers for adoption. In love. Oh, I should add that at first. In love. Let me say that again. In love, he predestined us. He loved you not because you were lovely and worthy. He loved you because he chose to love you. If every husband in the world would love his wife in that way, marriages would be a lot better off. No, I love you. I just choose to love you for reasons known only to myself. I choose to lavish my love on you. That's the kind of love that he has for us. Through Jesus Christ, again, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. This is all about God choosing. I know some of you would like to think predestination. Well, that's not a word in the Bible. And then I would say, well, Trinity, that's not a word in the Bible. But do you believe that word? And you'd say, oh, yeah, I guess I can't escape that. It's the best word to put together what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. But predestination is in the Bible. We've accounted it twice in this passage that God predestined us. So it's all about his will. Well, I can't get my head around that. I don't understand that kind of unconditional love and acceptance. That's just beyond me. Well, yeah, we need to recognize that we don't understand everything. Especially younger people here, you think you know all things. You know, you're kind of, old people, what do they know? You know, they don't know much. And there is ageism, no question about it. And now working with the senior adults at Second, I I see it more. I see people, I'm more sensitive to it. People that kind of put down an older person and it's ridiculous. So I want to tell you a story that I heard about um, an older person, a senior citizen from Memphis, who went to Manhattan and went into a bank in Manhattan and went up to the banker, got an appointment with the banker and just said, "Uh, I don't have an an account with your bank, but I would like to take out a loan for $5,000 for a two week trip to London that I'm taking to watch Wimbledon. And I wonder if you would be able to loan that to me. Well, the young banker says, well, we'd love to loan that to you, ma'am, but but we, um, we would need some collateral. You know, we, we don't know you. We don't have an account uh, for you. And she, oh, I understand completely. I brought my $250,000 Maserati um, to the bank that you might have it. And here's the title for it. And if you'll send one of your assistants out to look for it, you'll confirm it. Young banker goes out, looks at this unbelievable car, this Maserati, and it's, you know, checks the Kelly Blue Book, you know, 250 easily, and uh, says, okay, that'll work. Um, but we'll need to keep that car, of course, you know, while you take the 5,000. Oh, that's exactly, that's fine. Well, ma'am, can we take you to the airport? That'd be fine, but but we're going to keep the car. Oh, I understand. So they take her to the airport, come back, drive down into the garage apartment, the garage, uh, basement garage for the car uh, of the bank. They leave it there for two weeks and the woman's gone. Now, everybody's laughing about this woman. Just dumb old woman. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're poor and you do something like this, they call you crazy. If you're rich and you do something like this, they call you eccentric. So she is clearly eccentric. We did some background checking on her. She's a multimillionaire. Why on earth would she be doing this? So they laugh at her expense quite a bit. Two weeks later, sure enough, she comes up. They picked her up at the airport. They brought her back to the bank. 
Um, and they said, ma'am, this has been wonderful. Thank you for the check or for paying us back. We're appreciative of that. But I just have a question. You're a multimillionaire. Why did you need to borrow $5,000 from us? He says, well, how else would I have parked for $2 a day in Manhattan without, and known that I would get my car back at the end of it? Oh, oh, it's like Captain Ramius, you know, turning the Red October right into the path of the nuclear warhead armed torpedo that's coming and the rest of the people, his own uh, Russian uh, allies and the Americans that are in that sub trying to take it over for the Americans' use. He's trying to defect to the U.S. And they say, are you crazy? What are you doing? And then the torpedo glances off the side of the torpedo because he closed the distance and they didn't have time to arm it before it could explode. And they go, oh, you are crazy like a fox. Now that is amazing. Do you think God might know more about what's going on in this world than you or I do? And that maybe we should trust him when he puts us through things that we don't understand. How can this, how can this be that you love me, Lord, and yet you have allowed X to happen in my life? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Well, because of God the Father's election, then we, we give him praise. We bow in awe before him. We go, Oh, Lord, how, how did you know? How could you, you brought, you made so much good out of that that I, I would have never chosen that, Lord, but thank you. One day, that's what we'll say for eternity. Third reason is because of God the Son's redemption or forgiveness, verses 7 through 12. In him, we have redemption. So again, in Christ, through his blood, this is not cheap forgiveness, cheap grace, cheap um, love. It cost God how deep the Father's love for us as we've just sung. It's one of my favorite hymns. And it's at great cost that God loves us. It's through his blood that he has redeemed us. And it's according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You know what's so great about that phrase? According to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us in all wisdom, it's because it helps explain verse six. Because in verse six, instead of it being to the praise of his glory, that's in verse 12, verse 14, to the praise of his glory, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Why grace? Why does that get such special treatment? It's because grace truly is amazing. You know, Matt Redman, 10,000 reasons will my heart, for my heart to find, 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. What's the last stanza of amazing grace? When we've been there, how many? 10,000 years. What is it about 10,000? Wow, the uh, modern and ancient people are coming up with 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun amazing grace that he lavished upon us, undeserved favor that he just poured out and poured out and poured out on us. He redeemed us, he forgave us. This is incredible. There's another verb in these verses also. Well, one other according to, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ, 
for the fullness of time, the fullness of time for His return, even as Galatians 4.4 talks about the fullness of time for His first advent, to unite all things in Him, that in Christ will be the great unifying force in all of the universe. But then in verse 11, we find that He also made us heirs. He made us heirs. He didn't just give us redemption. He, he made us heirs. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that's the second mention of that word, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. There's a lot about purpose, will, counsel, mystery. God is sovereignly choosing His plan for this, this cosmos. And it, it blows our minds. It's way beyond us. But we can trust Him that He's good and that He's shown us this through what He's done for us. The Father's election, the Son's redemption, and finally, because of the Spirit's preservation, verses 13 and 14. In Him, again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, 35 times in the book of Ephesians, in Christ, more than any other book in the Bible, and 11 of those times are in this very first sentence, or this sentence, 3 to 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The repetition of that verse showing us there are four different reasons to praise Him. To the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's this point about the Holy Spirit that shows us the Achilles heel in Mr. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Those are great words inspired by nature and nature's God. That common grace, general revelation led Mr. Jefferson to be able to articulate that all men are created equal, meaning men and women we know now, and I think that's probably what it should have meant then, but as um, Angelica Schuyler says uh, in Hamilton, I mean, when I see Mr. Jefferson, I'm gonna tell him to get women in the sequel, that all men and women are created equal. And that all people, regardless of the color of their skin or of their ethnic background, are created equal. And yet our country didn't get that right then and still working on getting that right now. Why? Why is that? Because there's a big difference between human beings' abilities and God's ability. In his book, Redemption, Planned, Accomplished, and Applied, uh, John Murray lays out the parts that the Trinity play in our redemption, that God plans it, Jesus accomplishes it, but do not minimize for a second what the Holy Spirit does, that he actually applies it. He makes it happen. Mr. Jefferson could say all people are created equal, but he couldn't secure it. He could proclaim all men are created equal, but he couldn't procure it. But our God doesn't just say it. He actually does it. So Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So, to whom have I been speaking? Well, I've been speaking to believers in the Lord Jesus. I've been speaking also to those who are not yet believers in the Lord Jesus. Just quickly, um, look at verse 12 and look at verse 14 to see who's in this. So 
Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. We've been reading we and us, including all believers, all the way through this, and I think appropriately so. But in this verse, it seems clear that Paul is delineating within the we one group who were the first to believe. In other words, Jewish background believers. Well, then what happens in verse 14? He is the gear, uh, sorry, verse 13, in Him you also Who's the you? Gentile background believers. Sometimes, some people have thought that this uh, passage teaches universalism, that God's going to save everybody, particularly verse 10, talking about the ultimate plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and in things on earth, that even the devil will be saved at some point. But this passage gives a context that gives the lie to that view. According to verse 1, Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. doesn't mean the super, super spiritual people. It means believers in Jesus who are set aside as holy in God's sight because of that belief. And also, it's very clear um, in verse 13 that he's talking to you who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it. You know, you may have heard the gospel before today, and you may not have believed it. Now, many of you do believe it and you're happy for it. And so you especially need to apply verses three to 14 to yourself. But others of you who don't really, you're not sure about it. You've known it, but you haven't believed it. You know, why not? Could today be the day that you decide, no, I'm gonna believe this. I'm gonna turn from my sin and I'm gonna put my trust in Christ because God is awesome, absolutely awesome. Well, the book of Job gives us a glimpse into the heavenly places when God and Satan are disputing about Job. Job doesn't understand the whole story. Why is he suffering as he is? But this is what Job says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Come what may, I trust God. May we be like him because undoubtedly, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have been blessed to be a blessing. But even more undoubtedly and more ultimately and more everlastingly, we have been blessed to bless the blesser. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we come before you and pray for your help. We could come up with a fancy-sounding application, but we're powerless to execute it. Would you please empower us by your Holy Spirit to repent and to believe afresh and to trust in you, even though you slay us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, who with you and with the Holy Spirit is one God in three persons forever and ever. Amen.